0: Hey, okay, we need to get started. We got uh, all sorts of stuff to get to, and it seems like we never have enough time for the Old Testament messages. But anyway, we're in First Kings, and I want to, as I said last week, deal with the end of chapter 8. There's a few things there in chapter 8 that we didn't quite get to when it came to Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple. Just It's one of the longer chapters in the Bible, and there's, there's a lot of things there that I think look forward to. The new covenant and we, of course, dealt with the temple and that the temple was not an end in itself. Look forward to the church and to the dwelling place of God and so forth. Um, Last week, though, we did look at the Queen of Sheba. Saw that she is a type of the importance and interest we should have with Christ in his word. Her interest in Solomon's glory condemns those that have no interest in Christ, whose glory far exceeds Solomon's. And uh, as uh, the songs that we sing, uh, the, the words that, that she said there in First Kings, the half has not been told. And I think that's certainly a promise uh, for us that we know that we've, we've been told a lot about Christ, but it still remains to be seen all that he is in the glory of God as we stand before him someday. And we saw that, of course, uh, Solomon... Uh, the, the, or the glory of Christ exceeds Solomon in wealth and wisdom and provision and power and sacrifice and construction. Remember, especially the sacrifice as Solomon uh, offered tens of thousands of animals at the dedication of the temple. But the blood of bulls and goats really don't affect anything, right? And it was Jesus' sacrifice that once for all took care of sin. But if we go back to chapter 8, and we begin looking at some of the verses, uh, beginning in verse 41, we read, for instance, in verse 41, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the Order calls upon you, calls you to do. So again, I think as we talked about how that they were to pray towards the temple. And of course, the temple was the place of sacrifice, right? The place where peace was made, the place where communion with man and God is able to take place. So it, it represents Christ and his work. So we pray then in Jesus name or in lieu of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so here, though there's a looking forward to the fact that the Gentiles will be taking part in this kingdom. But it's a good prayer for us as well. Our prayers are to look for ways that this world can see God working in us and uh, attract the nations, as it were. Uh, There should be something about the way we live uh, that would be attractive. Uh, And and, yes, the gospel is offensive and our lives and our our words to, to expose sin are offensive, but there's something about when they hear, uh, when they hear, or see the way we live, to see the peace that we have, the joy that we have, those are things that should give the world pause as to, um what, what we're all about. And, uh, we should not be a turnoff, uh, in the, because we're mean or unchristlike, like right? And so the temple was not to be Israel's best-kept secret. What we do in church, uh, and the joy of our salvation is something that we are to share with others. We're not a cult that we hide away, uh, just to ourselves, but we are to spread the gospel. We are to be open. Now, of course, obviously, in, in, in times of persecution, there is a, uh, that is something that causes problems there, but even we know that in persecution, uh, the gospel often goes forth in great power and does a great work, even though the church has to meet in, in secret. Um, there's a, an interesting verse here in Isaiah two, 2 that I think speaks to this. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, there's certainly confusion among some about what the latter days are. I believe we're living in the latter days. And I believe these prophecies are, uh, are speaking of the time between the ascension and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That constitutes the latter days. Some would see this as all referring to a, a, a kingdom kingdom. Uh, in the future, okay, so let's just see. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains. And so if we're going to take this as being a literal kingdom, then we then to be consistent, we have to take this as speaking of, at some place there's going to be a mountain, a high mountain established as the highest of mountains. Well, I'm sorry, there's no mountain in Jerusalem that can fits that bill. So to me, right off the bat, you see we're talking about something spiritual. The the highest mountain, the most exalted position, which I believe has to be the, uh, the, the resurrected in the throne, Christ. And shall be lifted up above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, and again, we're talking about the house of the Lord, right? So this house is in the most exalted position on earth. And many nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So, yes, some people believe this is speaking about that the Lord is going to be enthroned in uh, Jerusalem, and that all the nations are going to go and want to see Jesus. I think that creates, on the surface, a real logistical problem that, that everybody's going to somehow be located in a very tiny, tiny area. But even so, but, but could it not be, again, referring to the latter days that we are in, I think the New Testament makes very clear that this is a, a, a prophecy about the day in which the gospel will go forth and people will hear the gospel and they will go to Christ and they will go to the church because the church is the dwelling place of God. The church is the um, fulfillment of the temple, and so uh, it, it speaks of the, the life and the, the, the ministry of the church in the new covenant. So, anyway, that's how I would I would look at. I think that that uh, in the, when we go to the New Testament, it's much easier to um, establish that than uh, to, uh, to look to a future kingdom. But anyway, we notice that the glory of the Lord is what attracts the nations in His salvation and works. And we we go to the church, we go to, to the church where Christ is presented, so we might know what God says and might learn of him. Well, another interesting section here down in verse fifty four, where um, now as Solomon finished offering all the prayers and pleased the Lord, he arose from the altar of the Lord and he where he had knelt with his hands outstretched to heaven, and he stood and blessed the assembly with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord has given rest to his people according to all he has promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses' his servant. The Lord your God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments, his statutes, his rules, which he commanded our fathers. So he's saying the Lord has pro- he's he promised in Moses that he would make a covenant with us. He would bring us to a land, and he would bless us as long as we keep the covenants. So that's what he said. That that has happened. Everything that was promised to Moses has been fulfilled, and we are now enjoying that. <clears throat> and so, um, verse fifty-seven: The Lord our God be with us, as He was with our fathers. May He not leave us nor forsake us, that He may incline our hearts to Him and walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may, In other words, the, the prayers, the things that I've said, are something that the Lord hears and reacts to and deals with day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is none other. So, there's a general sense in which as the people obey the Lord and as the Lord uh, blesses them, the the name of the Lord goes forth throughout the nations. But here we see it, this familiar theme that we've talked about where God has said he has done everything that he said he would do. And, uh, the fact that god has been faithful is used to encourage uh, us who truly and wholly trust on him and to, and to further continue to do that in verse 59 though there's something of this truth uh, that it, where we see that there's something about the, the fact that this is something that we need day and night our ability to come before the throne and and find grace in the time of need is always available and of course this is not anything you know, earth-shattering, but, but again, it's it's reminding us, as, as it's reminding Israel, that we can approach God at all times, he hears at all times, and he works at all times. And the phrase here, as each day requires, I believe it's in uh, verse at the end of verse 59, um, is actually the same phrase that is used in Exodus chapter 16 when God gave the people manna. And he promised to give them as much manna as each day requires and no more. Because that, and again, that's, I think, something in the New Testament we'll see here in a moment. that The New Testament picks up and and teaches that um, God gives us what we need today. And uh, he puts us in a situation today that we are to serve him and not worry about tomorrow. And that's a a biblical theme that we have to, to understand. And of course, you, you think about Matthew 6 deals with that. Sufficient unto to the day is the evil thereof in a KJV. You know, the, the idea is that uh the Lord will provide what you need and don't worry about tomorrow because it has, tomorrow has its own problems. You need to worry about today. And, and the Lord will supply, you know, he takes care of the birds, he'll take care of you and so forth. You know, that All in Matthew 6 which we won't take time to read. And so, I think the idea here is that our prayers are to be for what we need today. And our first concern is not bread that we eat, but the manna from heaven. In other words, uh we, we know that there's a sense in which we have to worry about tomorrow because we have to get jobs, we have to plan. That's all part of life. But that's one thing, to plan and to work towards one thing, to worry and to fret, especially over the body and let the spiritual go is a great sin i think that's what matthew 6 is getting at that while we have to feed the body it what does matthew 6 say seek ye first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you so my first concern when i get up in the morning is what can i how can i serve the lord and please him and then as i work towards food and shelter and, and those physical needs, um, I, I never stray far from the idea that I'm first here to serve the Lord. And and if I have to obey Him, and it means losing my job or putting my physical well-being in jeopardy, so to speak, that's okay. In other words, the Lord said, first obey me and I'll take care of the rest. And, and so you have this idea there. That the Lord will take care of us as each day requires. Living in the moment is hard enough, and we don't need to waste energy thinking about what might be. So let's stay focused on what God is doing in each moment, in that person that you meet, in that situation that you're in. You know, to 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 realize that I'm supposed to be. I'm here first and foremost to uh, spread the glory of Christ to the nations, right, and to to glorify his name, not just to exist. That's that's how the naturalist thinks. That's how the world thinks. I am here to exist, to extend my life as long as possible, to have as much fun in the flesh as I can. And, and they don't have God in mind at all. And Christians very easily fall into that th- way of thinking, but, but we got to be careful that we don't. So we are to not allow our uh, the grand schemes of life to stop us from serving the Lord moment by moment. And so you say, well, I want to be in the will of God. Well, I, I tell people that if you want to to be in the will of God and know the will of God, your primary first concern is, are you in God's will right now? In this moment, in this day? Am I doing what the Lord would have me do now? And if you are, then okay, that that's a safe place to be. And then from there you can go on and you can start moving outward to the next day and, and the next year. But but I, but if we are always worried about what's going to happen in the future, we're not going to get anything done today, right? And then uh, the last section here in uh, chapter 8 uh, where Solomon makes these sacrifices in 62 through 64, we see that he has offered some 150,000 or more uh, animals. So just, just a blood, a bloody mess. And, and a blood must have been flowing in ways that we can't hardly imagine. But what, what is being said there? Blood, blood. None of this is gonna take place without blood. Right? There's no peace, there's no help, there, there's no future without blood. And so I was thinking about, um oh, Romans 5-9 maybe is a good, uh, Verse: Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall be saved by by him. By the, excuse me, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled we have been saved by his life. And so there we see, of course, that it is the blood that saves us from the wrath of God. But it's an interesting verse to me because it says that it really, in a, in a much greater way, we're saved by His life. you ever thought about that? Like, what does that mean? And I, I think that primarily it's saying that as important as the death and indispensable as the death of Christ is to save us, right? If He was not raised, it would be useless, right? So the the, the the fact that he is alive is what puts his death into effect. And as the Bible says, as long as he is alive and making intercession, we know that we shall be saved. And so I think that's the primary idea there. But uh, uh, Albert Barnes, in, in, in describing these, this verse, I thought it said something. That I kind of had a different take on it that was good. Not necessarily different, but another take. Yet the effect of this feeble, low, and humiliating state was to reconcile us to God. Talking about his death on the cross. If in this state, when humble and despised, dying and dead, he had power to accomplish so great a work as to reconcile us to God, how much more may we expect that he will be able to keep us now that he is living, exalted, and a triumphant redeemer? If his feigning powers in nine were such as to reconcile us, how much more shall his full, vigorous powers as an exalted redeemer be sufficient to keep and save us? This argument is but an expansion of what the Savior himself said in John fourteen nineteen, because I live, ye shall live also. And again I think that's a reference or a, a similar thing there to Romans chapter five. It is that he is alive, and we'll get to this in First Corinthians 15, which is all about the resurrection, and that since he is alive, we know that we shall too uh, be alive someday in, in the same way that he is. So, just uh, an interesting thought I thought when it came to the uh, the, the sacrifice of Christ and what the temple and all these things look forward to. All right, well let's skip forward then to chapter eleven. And we will at least start a look at Solomon's downfall. As I said last week, remember that chapter 10, um, with the Queen of Sheba was the pinnacle of Israel's kingdom. And that everything from now on is a little bit less. There were some, there were some revivals, there were some, there were some times where they had a measure of power, but this is the zenith. That's why Solomon, I think, kind of pictures the, uh, the kingdom of Christ in some ways. but um, let's just uh, read the first, let's just stand and we'll read the first eight verses of chapter 11 because this is uh, kind of the, the sum of what we want to talk about. First Kings 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, the Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord has said of the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their God. So, that it's good to remind ourselves that the primary point of this is not all the problems that come with, it, it was Solomon's case, marrying a lot of women at one time. That, that's an issue. But uh, the, the point here, the reason Behind it all is that they are idolatrous. And there's they have no reason to marry. And to come into that kind of union with an idolater. Um, So there in verse 2. You shall not enter marriage with them. Neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives princesses, and thirty hundred concubines. And his wives turned away his heart, for when Solomon was old, his, uh, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. It's important to understand that, it, that Solomon never turned away from God, but he added other gods. There are other things that, that took his heart as well and as as was the heart of David his father, who, of course, was never fell into idolatry. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the uh, abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the um, abomination of the Ammonites on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. maybe seated. So again, it's not necessarily that Solomon worshipped at those high places. We're not told that specifically, I don't think. But he did it for his wives so they could worship these false gods. So, And, and God sees that as uh, participating in idolatry, and rightly so. You're encouraging that which is false. And of course, you are you are despising their souls, if nothing else, right? So I don't believe that the Bible leaves any doubt as to what causes Solomon's spiritual downfall. He doesn't lose the kingdom as such. He's still successful in the world's way of thinking. But it is clear that before God, he fails, and he fails miserably. And that's all that matters, is is how God sees these, these, these things, you know. You know, I have to look at this as a pastor of a a church, of a small church, of a church that that struggles to to keep a lot of people in it. You know, and and I want to always make sure that I'm doing what is right. But at the end of the day, success is have I been faithful to the Lord as best I know how to be. Not as the world sees it, because obviously the world drives by and says that church is not a successful church and that's okay i mean, I can live with that i i don't like it i, I like there's not a reason in the world why these uh, seats aren't full except that you know i mean there's a lot of different reasons why that probably takes place but you know so i but i have to worry about the lord jeff and i have to worry about what are we doing what we believe is right and and, and at the end of the day i've got to answer to that right and so that's what matters. And so he, like us, had the word of God plainly laid out on, on his duty. The Lord plainly laid, lays out his duty before him. Don't marry a lot of women. Now there's other things. Don't fall into idolatry. And but it, when he said that about the, his wives, he said because they're going to they will steal your heart. We'll read about that in just a moment. Where, where that says that, I believe. He graciously gives him the reasons why you cannot and should not do this, and he ignores the Lord and he pays the price. And, and late, I don't know, you know, one wonders if Solomon didn't, at the end of his life, realize that that this was not a good thing, and he paid the price because uh, he pins Proverbs eighteen twenty-two, where he who finds a wife singular finds a good thing. He doesn't say that in, in, in the multitude of wives. Uh, a man finds a good thing. He doesn't say that. Of course, it was inspired and the Lord wouldn't have had him do that anyway, but maybe by that time he, he realized the fact. Of course, we know that Jesus confirms this in Matthew 19 where he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause a man, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, singular, and the two shall become one flesh. So so Jesus makes it very clear that is God's plan from the beginning. One man and one woman, husband and wife. Therefore, anybody who calls a, a woman a husband or a man a wife is rejecting God's revelation. And uh, it, 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 it's abomination. And this is what uh, God has said from the beginning. Now, yes, the Lord allowed multiple marriages in, or multiple wives in the marriages. There, there were obviously those, those times there were in, in probably in one sense practical reasons why they did that. But the Lord allowed it, but he never commanded it, never condoned it. He allowed it. And so those who say, well, the Bible teaches it's okay to have, and there are those who, who believe that it's okay to have more than one wife. It's not true the Bible doesn't does not teach that in fact, what do we read about when it comes to the qualifications of elders? They are to have one wife and if they have more than one wife and I don't believe I think that's one wife at a time, but either way uh it's wrong and because that's the standard that's god that the qualifications of elders are not something that only they need to worry about that is the standard that is what we are to work towards and everybody can't but but that's what we are to work towards, especially the men. And so again, this is something I know I'm preaching to the choir, but uh, it's something that you just can't overemphasize in our day and age because you hear the contrary so often. Notice also that um, the the reason for not having these all these wives isn't just because of the obvious domestic and sexual distraction of all that, and we see that with. Jacob and his wives, and, and the drama of just having twelve—or not twelve wives, but uh, four wives—but <clears throat> that that is a reason. That's an obvious reason. But um, <clears throat> the the problem is is that they bring this influence. You have married uh, ungodly women. You have married idolatrous women. So even if you married one idolatrous woman, you've sinned. You you disobey the Lord. And you have brought her influence into your union, <clears throat> into your home, and of course, that's the point here. That's the danger in anything that we must guard our affections. And there are obvious things that we are not to do, like Paul tells us not to be joined with darkness. Don't be, don't, don't come into union with those who are in darkness, because you're having fellowship with darkness and. That speaks primarily to the marriage, I think, Um, but it's something that we have to be very cognizant of when it comes to business, when it comes to our friends, to our relationships, to, to our influence. In other words, if I hang around idolaters, and of course, if you hang around lost people, there's a sense in which you are hanging around idolaters then I've got to be very careful about how I interact with them, how often I interact with them, and what kind of influence they have over me. And, of course, the problem is is that we have been called to go into the world and to engage the lost. So we're not talking about here that I I just ignore and have nothing to do with the lost, because that would be contrary to Scripture. But if I'm not to be real close uh, and allow myself to become under the influence of of those who are uh, ungodly, then I've got to stop and think about my relationships. And one of the one uh, litmus test that I try to use when it comes to uh, interaction with whether and it's even if at work or ever even legitimate things is if I am around these people, who has control of the situation, who makes the decisions? You see, if, I, if I'm going to be with people, with, let's say, a, a group of lost people, and they're the ones making all the decisions, where we go, what we talk about, and so forth, what kind of language you use, then I'm, in my mind, I'm probably going to have to, to uh, that's something I can't be part of. If I can have influence, if, if I can decide, especially, so it's much easier if, I, if I'm with one person rather than a group of people, but if I can influence, okay, that's one thing. But when I realize that every time I'm around them and and we end up doing what they want and and that uh, they're the ones who kind of control the situation, that I'm not really being a light in darkness. I'm just kind of putting myself under evil influence. So, again, that's just an example. something to think about to, uh, you know, is this good for me? And am I being a witness to them? Because I, you know, you you hear people that say, well, you know, I, I go down to the bar and drink with my buddies because... I'm I'm, I'm trying to build a relationship with them and and trying to be liked to them. Well, I mean, come on, is is that how's that working for you? So you got to stop and think about it. What what kind of activities you're engaged in? You know, if you're going down to the bar and you're having a Bible study, then I wouldn't say anything. (laughs) But I don't know if that ever really truly happens like that um, in in a certainly in an individual. So anyway, just I'm not trying to say everything's black and white, but there, there, it should be obvious that we have to stop and think about these things. <clears throat> Another thing to, uh, maybe lesson to learn here is that Solomon, by not fleeing youthful lust, falls prey to them in his old age. Now, I know that a lot of these marriages were political, but at the end of the day, you know, Solomon is, uh, exercising his lust. I mean, you know, you, you can't, you can't separate all that from here. and. Anyway, the point though is that there's no time in life that we can relax and think the struggle is over. Uh, I know that at 63, I still the sin is still in there and, and I still struggle with it, uh, and I don't know that I struggle with it any less in, in overall than I ever have. It is always there; it always will be there. And so there's that part. That there's that the struggle will never end while you're in the flesh, and and that, I think that that means that we are to re- remind ourselves that no matter how old I am, that as long as I have breath, I am here to serve the Lord. And there's never a time where I can just relax and say, "Well, I'm out. I'm I'm retiring from being a Christian. I'm, I'm retiring from, at least from a- engaging and, and and trying to work for the kingdom." That's I'll leave it to the younger people. Well, no, I, if the Lord can give you life, then I think he we have something to offer. And then again, to finish the point, the Bible makes it very clear that we are not to be unequally yoked. It says here that he married a lot of strange women. If you have the KJV, of course, it's not strange, uh, in, in a sense of odd. Uh, that might be true. Maybe you did marry an odd woman or an odd husband. But what it means here, of course, we know it as the ESV translated is foreign. But again, that, that in by itself, a lot of people would take that to, uh, you know, to wrong conclusions. He's it, not saying that it's wrong to marry a non-Jew. It was to marry, you were not to marry a idolater. Now, there were these groups that were to be wiped out in many cases, or that, that they weren't to marry. But it, the point was that you were marrying someone who's a pagan, who's an idolater, not because they are different, uh, nationality or a different ethnic group. And so anybody who reads into this that somehow this still applies to us in the same way has clearly gone way beyond what the Bible teaches. There's The the idea that we aren't to marry outside of our ethnic group or we are outside of our race, although technically there are no such, there's no such thing as races, but uh, those who don't look like us is just non-biblical. And and there's examples of this even in, in Scripture where this happened. The point is, to be unequally yoked is not because you've married a black person or, or, or whatever. It's because you've married an unsaved person, an idolater. And, and that's the point here. And so, you know, we just want to... And that, and that really was far worse than even the number of wives that he um, married. And so, uh, let's just go over to Deuteronomy chapter 17, because there's more things in there than just that particular thing that I think is profitable. Deuteronomy 17, and let's begin reading in verse 14, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. Deuteronomy 17, 14. <clears throat> when you come to the land of the Lord your God, is that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. So, you already, you already see the point of having... The, the mindset is already I want to be like everybody else. So, so you, there's a sense in which they've already failed, right, in asking for the king. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother. Only he must not requ- acquire many horses for himself. And again, why? Well, because the king is to be someone who leads the people, and if he's more concerned with the, having a big army, he's already dr- drawing people's uh, faith away from the Lord, right? So he, ne- he doesn't need to acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, "You shall never return that way again." So don't don't go back. Don't trust in the world, in the, in the worldly things. Trust in the Lord. Obey Him. Verse 18, and when he, or excuse me, uh, verse 17, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess, excessive silver and gold. So you see, all, all three of those things can cause your heart to turn away from the Lord in different ways. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest, And it shall be with him and he shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, keep him humble, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, keep him holy, either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So what is he supposed to do? Instead of trying to become a rich ruler, Instead of trying to become a mighty ruler, uh, he needs to have a copy of the, of the uh, Pentateuch in front of him, and or at least Deuteronomy, and he needs to make a copy of that. He needs to write that down as a, and make a copy of that. While he, that's what he needs to be worried about: study God's word, understand God's will, that he might uh, be a good father and, and a good king. And just what an example, you know. And I don't think it's hard for us to understand the example here. Uh, especially, uh, not just to, to the fathers and the men, but all, to all of us. And what I need, to, well, that's what Jesus said. Is, is that not the same thing Jesus said? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Solomon, you don't need a big army. You just need uh, the wisdom that comes from above. You need my power. You need me to, because it, as long as Solomon's heart was in tune towards God, his kingdom increased and his enemies fell before him see so you know again it's just just excellent excellent uh lessons there to be learned as we study some of these old testament principles <clears throat> well in back in first kings 11 in verses 9 through 13 stop here pretty soon we begin to see that his um kingdom Because of this, the Lord raises up adversaries. So the Lord is angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant which we'll find out next week, literally his, literally his servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. And, of course, one reason for that is because uh, God still had some promises to keep. God still had to send the, the Redeemer uh, through the uh, kingly line of Solomon of David and so he, he didn't cause the whole thing to disperse as he did in 70 AD once Jesus did his work. Uh, the, the king, the kingdom of Israel was finally dispersed or the, the people of Israel, but he had to keep it intact, you know, up until that point until Jesus came and did his work. So he, he, he does say that there. So God's kingdom isn't going to fail, but Solomon is an earthly kingdom is going to fail as as he falls into open sin. And so uh, there are adversaries in Christ's kingdom, but we know that those adversaries can only do what the sovereign Lord allows them to do. Solomon shows that he is much weaker than the Lord because his adversaries uh, he can't control. And they do uh, start taking back some of the land. Uh, and at one point uh, they come and they, you know, come into land and invade the land and so forth. So, you know, we see him not being anything like what the Lord is, and, and, which re- just reminds us that we need a greater kingdom than Solomon, right? And so, it says that at the heart of all this was his heart. What grieved the Lord was that what was in Solomon's heart, it was in his wills and emotions, his inner self, that he had given himself in part to those other gods, and, and the Lord said, you know, David, your father. so what, that's the one Line that your David, your father, did not cross. He never entertained uh, any kind of worship or trust in false gods, or, or any room for false gods. And yet you have. And then here we'll close with this, because it says here it lists all these different gods that he allowed to enter into uh, the worship of Israel. First of all, it mentions the asterisk, which we know is the female counterpart to Baal, and a very disgusting um, god in her, in her own uh, right. Um, but some of these gods, we know, uh, were gods that you offered your, your children in the fire. You burned your children alive. That was part of the worship, Moloch and Shemush. Um, and, and, and the, and the gods said, that's an abomination. You know, how how could you... And, and, well, and that's why we have to always keep before us today that that's what abortion is. They're offering their children on, uh, because they're an inconvenience to them, because their God is their own bellies. Their God is themselves. And they will not uh, allow the consequences of their wantonness to interfere with what they want. And so they, 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 they pretend that they're just a a, fecal or a a fetus that they can just discard saw a woman wearing a, uh, a t-shirt uh, that said fetus on board. Well, no, I'm sorry. That, that's a, that, that's, that's, that's that's just another one of the lies. It's not a fetus, it's a baby. No, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as a fetus, but that's it, that is given the impression that uh, it's not quite human life yet, that it's okay to look at it differently just because it happens to be in the womb instead of outside the womb, but That's an abomination, and we can't ever allow that to enter into our thinking. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we never can get good people elected again because of that issue. I I don't care. Because we're not here to uh, get good people elected. If if we do our best, and if that's not the case, then so be it. But we're not going to compromise on the issue of murdering babies just to hopefully get a few more people in office that, that maybe have, we agree with on some other issue. There's just not, you say, well, I'm just being a one-issue candidate. Well, I'm not a one-issue candidate. I'm not a one-issue person, but protecting children, if, if Christians can't be a, an influence to protect the life of children, whether it be the, their grooming and their mutilation that we're seeing, uh then, then what are we here for? So say, well, we're here to preach the gospel. Well, no, we're here to be a light to the world, to be salt, and, uh, to stand on certain issues that I don't think we can compromise. But I, anyway, we'll, we'll close on those, uh, thoughts and get back into it, Lord willing, next week. Any questions or comments? Your love to us this day, and, Lord, these are extremely important issues. These are things that we must be well aware of and understand when it comes to serving the Lord and to Uh, understanding the importance of of our heart being right and of trusting in you, what that looks like, what that means, and the testimony that that brings. So we just pray that you might uh, help us to grow in our understanding and our faith. May, Lord, you be pleased to use us uh, to bring others to the kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.